Chapter Two of the Silent Barrier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Silent Barrier by Lewis Tracy. Chapter Two, The Fulfillment of the Wish. Explanations of motive are apt to become tedious. They are generally inaccurate, too, for who can reduce a fantasy to a formula? Nor should they ever be allowed to clip the wings of romance. But the painter who bade his subject sit under a sodium light would justly be deemed a lunatic, and any analysis of Spencer's character drawn from his latest prank would be faulty in the extreme. In all London at that moment there was not a more level-headed man of his years. He was twenty-eight, an expert mining engineer, and the successful pioneer of a new method of hauling ore. Even in Western America, God's own country, as it is held to be by those who live there, few men arrive so early in life. Some, it is true, amass wealth by lucky speculation before they are fitted by experience to earn the price of a suit of clothes. But they are of the freak order. They are not to be classed with one who by hard work wrests a fortune out of the grim Colorado granite. Spencer had been called on to endure long years of rebuff and scorn. Though scoffed at by many who thought he was wrong, he persisted because he knew he was right. Oft-times fate will test such a man almost to breaking point. Then she yields, and being feminine, her obduracy is the measure of her favors, for she will bestow on her dogged suitor all, and more than all, that he desired. The draft from Leadville, crammed so carelessly into a pocket when he followed the three to the door, was a fair instance of this trick of hers. A tunnel, projected and constructed in the teeth of ridicule and financial opposition, had linked up the underground workings of several mines, and proved conclusively that it was far cheaper to bring minerals to the rail in that manner than to sink expensive shafts, raise the ore to the top of a mountain, and cart it to its old level in the valley. One thing was indisputable. The young engineer found himself rich and famous. To increase the feeders of the main bore, he drove another short gallery through a mining claim acquired for a few dollars, a claim deemed worthless owing to a geological fault that traversed its whole length. That was fate's opportunity. Doubtless she smiled mischievously when she gave him a vein of rich quartz through which to quarry his way. The mere delving of the rock had produced two thousand dollars worth of ore of which sum he took a moiety by agreement with the company that purchased his rights. People in Leadville soon discovered that Spencer was a bright man. Yes, sir, a citizen of whom the chief mining city of the Rocky Mountains has every reason to be proud. And the railway magnate, who had nearly ruined him by years of hostility, buried the past grandiloquently with a mow. Charles K. Spencer can't be sidetracked he said. That K isn't in his name by accident. Look at it! A regular buffer of a letter. Tell you what, you may monkey with Charles, but when you hit the K, look out for trouble. Whereupon the miners laughed, and said that the President was a mighty smart man, too, 
and Spencer, who knew he was a thief, but was unwilling to quarrel with him for the sake of the company, thought that a six months vacation in Europe would make for peace and general content. He had no plans. He was free to wander whithersoever chance led him. Arriving in London from Plymouth late on a Thursday evening, he took a bus driver's holiday on Friday. Finding a tunnel under the Thames in full progress near the hotel, he sought the resident engineer, spoke to him in the lingua franca of the craft, and spent several dangerous and enjoyable hours in crawling through all manner of uncomfortable passages bored by human worms beneath the bed of the river. And this was Saturday, and here he was, at three o'clock in the afternoon, turning over in his mind the best way of sending on an expensive trip abroad a girl who had not the remotest notion of his existence. It was a whim, and a harmless one, and he excused it to his practical mind by the reflection that he was entitled to one day of extravagance after seven years of hard labor. For his own part, he was weary of mountains. He had wrought against one, frowning and stubborn as any alp, and had not desisted until he reached its very heart with a four-thousand-foot lance. Switzerland was the last place in Europe he would visit. He wanted to see old cities and dim cathedrals, to lounge in pleasant lands where rivers murmured past lush meadows. Though an American born and bred, there was a tradition in his home that the Spencers were once people of note on the border. When tired of London, he meant to go north, and rambled through Lidsdale in search of family records. But the business presently on hand was to arrange that Swiss excursion for Helen, and he set about it with characteristic energy. In the first instance he noted her name and address on the back of the Leadville envelope. Then he sought the manager. "'I guess you know Switzerland pretty well,' he said, when a polite man was produced by a boy. The assumption was well-founded. In fact, the first really important-looking object the manager remembered seeing in this world was the great Matterhorn, because his mother told him that if he was a bad boy he would be carried off by the demons that dwelt on its summit. "'What sort of places are Evian-le-Bains and Champery?' went on Spencer. "'Evian is a fashionable lakeside town. Champery is in the hills behind it. When Evian becomes too hot in August, one goes to Champery to cool down. Are they anywhere near the Engadine? Good gracious, no! They are as different as chalk and cheese. Is the Engadine the cheese? Does it take the biscuit? The manager laughed. Like all Londoners, he regarded every American as a humorist. It all depends, he said. For my part... I think the upper Engadine is far and away the most charming section of Switzerland. But there are ladies of my acquaintance who would unhesitatingly vote for Evian, and for a score of other places where there are promenades and casinos. Are you thinking of making a tour there? There's no telling where I may bring up when I cross the channel, said Spencer. I have heard some talk of the two districts, and it occurred to me that you were just the man to give me a few useful pointers. Well, the average tourist rushes from one valley to another, tramps over a pass every morning, and spends the afternoon in a train or on board a lake steamer. But if I wanted a real rest, 
and wished at the same time to be in a centre from which pleasant walks or stiff climbs for that matter could be obtained i should go by the engadine express to st moritz and drive from there to the maloya kulm where there is an excellent hotel and usually a number of nice people english yes english and americans they select the best as a rule you know it sounds attractive said spencer and it is believe me don't forget the name maloya kulm it is twelve miles from everywhere and practically consists of the one big hotel spencer procured his hat gloves and stick and called a cab take me to the firefly office he said beg pardon sir but where's that asked the driver it's up to you to find out then what is it governor i've heard of the orse and hound the chicken's friend the cat and the bee but the firefly leaves me thinking is it a newspaper something of the sort all right sir jump in we'll soon be on its track the hansom scampered off to fleet street as the result of inquiries spencer was deposited at the entrance to a dingy court the depths of which he was assured were illumined by the firefly there is nothing that so mystifies the citizen of the new world as the hole-and-corner aspect of some of the business establishments of london he soon learns however to differentiate between the spidery dens where money is amassed and the soot-laden tenements in which the struggle for existence is keen a comprehensive glance at the exterior of the premises occupied by the firefly at once explained to spencer why the cabman did not know its whereabouts three small rooms sufficed for its literary and commercial staff and to let notices stared from several windows in the same building appearances are deceptive ever murmured he as he scanned the legends on three doors in a narrow lobby but i think i'm beginning to catch on to the limited extent of miss helen's earnings from her scientific paragraphs he knocked at each door but received no answer then having sharp ears he tried the handle of one marked private it yielded and he entered to be accosted angrily by a pallid elderly bewhiskered man standing in front of a much littered table confound it sir came the growl don't you know it is saturday afternoon and what do you mean by coming in unannounced guess you're the editor said spencer what if i am i've just happened along to have a few quiet words with you if there's no callers saturdays well that's exactly what i want and i came right in because you didn't answer my knock i tell you i'm not supposed to be here then you shouldn't draw corks while anybody is damaging the paint outside spencer smiled so agreeably that the editor of the firefly softened at first he had taken his visitor for an unpaid contributor but the american accent banished this phantom of the imagination he continued to pour into a tumbler the contents of a bottle of beer well he said now that you are here what can i do for you mr spencer charles k spencer 
Instantly it struck the younger man that little more than an hour had elapsed since he gave his name to the letter clerk in the hotel. The singularity of his proceedings during that hour was thereby brought home to him. He knew nothing of newspapers, daily or weekly, but common sense suggested that the firefly's radiance was not overpowering. His native shrewdness advised caution, though he felt sure that he could, in homely phrase, twist this faded journalist round his little finger. "'Before I open the ball,' he said, "'may I see a copy of your magazine?' Meanwhile the other was trying to sum him up. He came to the conclusion that his visitor meant to introduce some new advertising scheme, and as the firefly was sorely in need of advertisements, he decided to listen. "'Here is last week's issue,' he said, handing to Spencer a small sixteen-page publication. The American glanced through it rapidly while the editor sampled the beer. "'I see,' said Spencer, after he had found a column signed H.W., which consisted of paragraphs translated from a German article on airships. "'I see that the firefly scintillates around the tree of knowledge.' The editor relaxed sufficiently to smile. "'That is a good description of its weekly flights,' he said. "'You don't use many cuts?' "'No. They are expensive and hard to obtain for such subjects as we favor. "'Don't you think it would be a good notion to brighten it up a bit, "'put in something lively, and more in keeping with the name?' "'I have no opening for new matter, if that is what you mean,' "'and the editor stiffened again. "'But you have the say-so as to the contents, I suppose.' "'Oh, yes.' THE SELECTION RESTS WITH ME. GOOD. I'M SORT OF INTERESTED IN A YOUNG LADY, MISS HELEN WINTON, BY NAME. SHE LIVES IN WARBURTON GARDENS AND DOES WORK FOR YOU OCCASIONALLY. NOW I PROPOSE TO SEND HER ON A MONTH'S TRIP TO SWITZERLAND, WHERE SHE WILL REPRESENT THE FIREFLY. YOU MUST GET HER TO TURN OUT A COUPLE OF PAGES OF READABLE STUFF EACH WEEK, WHICH YOU WILL HAVE ILLUSTRATED BY A SMART ARTIST AT A COST OF, SAY, Twenty pounds an article for drawings and blocks. I pay all expenses. She gets the trip, and you secure some good copy for nothing. Is it a deal? The editor sat down suddenly and combed his whiskers with nervous fingers. He was a weak man, and a too liberal beer diet was not good for him. Are you in earnest, Mr. Spencer? he queried in a bewildered way dead in earnest. You write the necessary letter to Miss Winton while I am here, and I hand you the first twenty in notes. You are to tell her to call Monday noon at any bank you may select, and she will be given her tickets and a hundred pounds. When I am certain that she has started, I undertake to pay you a further sum of sixty pounds. I make only two conditions. You must guarantee to star her work, as it should help her some and my identity must not be disclosed to her under any circumstances. In a word, she must regard herself as the accredited correspondent of the Firefly. If she appears to be a trifle rattled by your generosity in the matter of terms, you must try and look as if you did that sort of thing occasionally and would like to do it often. The editor pushed his chair away from the table. He seemed to require more air. Again, 
I must ask you if you actually mean what you say, he gasped. Spencer opened a pocket-book and counted four five-pound notes out of a goodly bundle. It is all here in neat copper-plate, he said, placing the notes on the table. Maybe you haven't caught on to the root idea of the proposition, he continued, seeing that the other man was staring at him blankly. I want Miss Winton to have a real good time. I also want to lift her up a few rungs of the journalistic ladder. But she is sensitive, and would resent patronage, so I must not figure in the affair at all. I have no other motive at the back of my head. I'm putting up two hundred pounds out of sheer philanthropy. Will you help? There are points about this amazing proposal that require elucidation, said the editor slowly. Travel articles might possibly come within the scope of the firefly, but I am aware that Miss Winton is what might be termed an exceedingly attractive young lady. For instance, you wouldn't be philanthropic on my account. You never can tell. It all depends on how your case appealed to me. But if you are hinting that I intend to use my scheme for the purpose of winning Miss Winton's favorable regard, I must say that she strikes me as the kind of girl who would think she had been swindled if she learned the truth. In any event, I may never see her again, and it is certainly not my design to follow her to Switzerland. I don't kick at your questions. You're old enough to be her father, and mine, for that matter. Go ahead. This is Saturday afternoon, you know, and there's no business stirring. Spencer had to cover the ground a second time before everything was made clear. At last the fateful letter was written. He promised to call on Monday and learn how the project fared. Then he relieved the cabman's anxiety, as the alley possessed a second exit, and was driven to the Wellington Theatre, where he secured a stall for that night's performance of the Chinese musical comedy in which Miss Millicent Jacques played the part of a British admiral's daughter. While Spencer was watching Helen's hostess cutting capers in a mandarin's palace, Helen herself was reading over and over again a most wonderful letter that had fallen from her sky. It had all the appearance of an ordinary missive, the king's face on a penny stamp, or so much of it as was left uninjured by a postal smudge, looked familiar enough, and both envelope and paper resembled those which had brought her other communications from the firefly. But the text was magic, rank necromancy. No wizard who ever dealt in black-letter treatises could have devised a more convincing proof of his occult powers than this straightforward offer made by the editor of the firefly. Four articles of five thousand words each, tickets and one hundred pounds awaiting her at a bank. Go to the Maloya Coombe Hotel, leave London at the earliest possible date, please send photographs and suggestions for black-and-white illustrations of mountaineering and society. What could it possibly mean? At the third reading, Helen began to convince herself that this rare stroke of luck was really hers. The concluding paragraph shed light on the Firefly's extraordinary outburst. As this commission heralds a new departure for the paper, I have to ask you to be good enough not to make known the object of your journey. In fact, 
"'It will be as well if you do not state your whereabouts "'to any persons other than your near relatives. "'Of course, all need for secrecy ceases "'with the appearance of your first article. "'But by that time you will practically be on your way home again. "'I am anxious to impress on you the importance of this instruction.' "'Helen found herein the germ of understanding.' The firefly meant to boom itself on its Swiss correspondence, but even that darksome piece of journalistic enterprise did not explain the princely munificence of the hundred pounds. At last, when she calmed down sufficiently to be capable of connected thought, she saw that mountaineering implied the hire of guides, and that society meant frocks. Of course it was intended that she should spend the whole of the money, and thus give the firefly a fair return for its outlay. And a rapid calculation revealed the dazzling fact that after setting aside the fabulous sum of two pounds a day for expenses, she still had forty pounds left wherewith to replenish her scanty stock of dresses. Believing that at any instant the letter might dissolve into a curt request to keep her scientific jottings strictly within the limits of a column, Helen sat with it lying open on her lap, and searched the pages of a tattered guidebook for particulars of the upper Engadine. She had read every line before, but the words now seemed to live. St. Moritz, Pontresina, Sil Maria, Silva Plana. They ceased to be mere names. They became actualities. The Julier Pass, the Septimer, the Forno Glacier, the Diavolese Route, and the rest of the stately panorama of snow-capped peaks, blue lakes, and narrow valleys. Valleys which began with picturesque chalets, dun-colored cattle, and herb-laden pastures, and ended in the yawning mouths of ice rivers whence issued the milky-white streams that dashed through the lower gorges. They passed before her eyes as she read till she was dazzled by their glories. What a daydream to one who dwelt in smoky London year in and year out! What an experience to look forward to! What memories to treasure! Nor was she blind to the effect of the undertaking on her future. Though the Firefly was not an important paper, though its editor was of a half-forgotten day and generation, she would now have good work to show when asked what she had done. She was not enamored of beetles, even the classifying of them was monotonous, and she had striven bravely to push her way through the throng of would-be writers that besieged the doors of every popular periodical in London. It was a heartbreaking struggle. The same post that gave her this epoch-marking letter had brought back two stories with a stereotyped expression of editorial regret. Now, thought Helen, when her glance fell on the bulky envelopes, my name will at least become known, and editors very much resemble the public they cater for. If a writer achieves success, they all want him. I have often marveled how any author got his first chance. Now I know. It comes this way, like a flash of lightning from a summer sky. It was only fit and proper that she should magnify her first real commission. No veteran soldier ever donned a field marshal's uniform with the same zest that he displayed when his subaltern's outfit came from the tailor. So Helen glowed with that serious enthusiasm which is the soul of genius, for without it life becomes flat and gray, 
and she passed many anxious, half-doubting hours until a courteous bank official handed her a packet at the appointed time on Monday, and gave her a receipt to sign, and asked her how she would take her hundred pounds. Did she want it all in notes, or some in gold? She was so unnerved by this sudden confirmation of her good fortune that she stammered confusedly, "'I... I really don't know.' "'Well, it would be rather heavy in gold,' came the smiling comment. "'This money, I understand, is paid to you for some journalistic enterprise that will take you abroad. May I suggest that you should carry, say, thirty pounds in notes and ten in gold?' and allow me to give you the balance in the form of circular notes, which are payable only under your signature. Yes, said Helen, rosy red at her awkwardness. That will be very nice. The official pushed across the counter some banknotes and sovereigns, and summoned a commissionaire to usher her into the waiting-room till he had prepared the circular notes. The respite was a blessing. It gave Helen time to recover her self-possession. She opened the packet, and found therein coupons for the journey to and from St. Moritz, together with a letter from the sleeping-car company, from which she gathered that a berth on the Engadine Express was provisionally reserved in her name for the following Thursday. But any change to a later date must be made forthwith, as the holiday pressure was beginning. It was advisable, too, she was reminded, that she should secure her return berth before leaving London. Each moment the reality of the tour became more patent. She might feel herself bewitched, but pounds sterling and railway tickets were tangible things, and not to be explained away by any fantasy. By the time her additional wealth was ready, she was better fitted to guard it. She hurried away, quite unconscious of the admiring eyes that were raised from dockets and ledgers behind the grill. She made for the court in which the firefly had its abode the squalor of the passage, the poverty-stricken aspect of the stairs, items which had prepared her on other occasions for the starvation rate of pay offered for her work, now passed unheeded. This affectation of scanty means was humorous. Obviously some millionaire had secured what the newspapers called a controlling interest in the firefly. She sought Mackenzie, the editor, and he received her with a manifest reluctance to waste his precious time over details that was almost as convincing as the money and vouchers she carried. "'Yes, Thursday will suit admirably,' he said in reply to her breathless questions. "'You will reach Maloya on Friday evening, and if you post the first article that day week, it will arrive in good time for the next number.' As for the style and tone, I leave those considerations entirely to you. So long as the matter is bright and readable, that is all I want. I put my requirements clearly in my letter. Follow that, and you cannot make any mistake. Helen little realized how precise were the instructions given two hours earlier to the editor, the bank clerk, and the sleeping-car company. Mackenzie's curt acceptance of her mission brought a wondering cry to her lips. "'I am naturally overjoyed at my selection for this work,' she said. "'May I ask how you came to think of me?' "'Oh, it is hard to say how these things are determined,' he answered. "'We liked your crisp way of putting dull facts, I suppose, and thought that a young lady's impressions of life in an Anglo-Swiss summer community 
would be fresher and more attractive than a man's. That is all. I hope you will enjoy your experiences. But please, I want to thank you. Not a word. Business is business, you know. If a thing is worth doing, it must be done well. Goodbye. He flattered himself that he could spend another man's money with as lordly an air as the youngest journalist on Fleet Street. The difficulty was to find the man with the money, and Mackenzie had given much thought during the Sabbath to the potentialities that lay behind Spencer's whim. He was sure the incident would not close with the publication of Miss Winton's articles. Judiciously handled, her unknown benefactor might prove equally beneficial to the Firefly. So Helen tripped out onto Fleet Street, and turned her pretty face westward, and looked so eager and happy that it was not surprising if many a man eyed her as she passed, and many a woman sighed to think that another woman could find life in this dreary city such a joyous thing. A sharp walk through the Strand and across Trafalgar Square did a good deal toward restoring the poise of her wits. For safety she had pinned the envelope containing her paper money and tickets inside her blouse. The mere presence of the solid little parcel reminded her at every movement that she was truly bound for the wonderful Engadine. And now that the notion was becoming familiar, she was more astonished that the choice of the firefly had fallen on her. It was all very well for Mr. Mackenzie to say that the paper would be brightened by a woman's views on life in the high Alps. The poor worn man looked as if such a holiday would have done him a world of good. But the certain fact remained that there was no room for error. It was she, Helen Winton, and none other, for whom the gods had contrived this miracle. If it had been possible, she would have crossed busy Cockspur Street with a hop, skip, and jump in order to gain the sleeping-car company's premises. She knew the place well. Many a time had she looked at the attractive posters in the windows, those gorgeous fly-sheets that told of winter in summer among the mountains of Switzerland and the Tyrol, and of summer in winter along the sunlit shores of the Côte d'Azur. She almost laughed aloud at the thought that possessed her as she waited for a moment on the curb to allow a press of traffic to pass. If my luck holds till Christmas, I may be sent to Monte Carlo, she said to herself. And why not? It's the first step that counts, and the firefly, once fairly embarked on a career of wild extravagance, may keep it up. Under the pressure of that further inspiration, she refused to wait any longer, but dodged an omnibus, a motor-car, and some hansoms, and pushed open the swing doors of the Bureau de la Compagnie des Wagonlits. She did not notice that the automobile stopped very quickly a few yards higher up the street. The occupant, Mark Bower, alighted, looked at her through the window to make sure he was not mistaken, and followed her into the building. He addressed some question to an attendant, and heard Helen say, "'Yes, please. Thursday will suit admirably. I am going straight through to St. Moritz. I shall call on Wednesday and let you know what day I wish to return.' If Bower had intended to speak to her, he seemed to change his mind rather promptly. Helen's back was turned. She was watching a clerk writing out a voucher for her berth in the sleeping-car, and the office was full of other prospective travelers discussing times and routes with the officials. 
Bower thanked his informant for information which he could have supplied in ampler detail himself. Then he went out and looked again at Helen from the doorway, but she was wholly unaware of his presence. Thus it came about quite simply and naturally that Mark Bower met Miss Helen Winton on the platform of Victoria Station on Thursday morning, and learned that, like himself, she was a passenger by the Ingadine Express. He took her presence as a matter of course, hoped she would allow him to secure her a comfortable chair on the steamer, told her that the weather report was excellent, and remarked that they might expect a pleasant crossing in the new turbine steamer. Then, having ascertained that she had a corner seat, and that her luggage was registered through to St. Moritz, Helen having arrived at the station a good hour before the train was due to start, he bowed himself away, being far too skilled a stalker of such shy game to thrust his company on her at that stage. His attitude was very polite and friendly, and Helen was almost grateful to the chance which had brought him there. She was feeling just a trifle lonely in the midst of the gay and chattering throng that crowded the station. The presence of one who was not wholly a stranger, of a friend's friend, of a man whose name was familiar, made the journey look less dreamlike. She was glad that he had not sought to travel in her carriage. That was tactful, and indeed his courtesy and pleasant words during her first brief meeting with him in the Embankment Hotel had conveyed the same favorable impression. So when the hour hand of the big clock overhanging the center of the platform pointed to eleven, the long train glided quietly away with its load of pleasure-seekers, and neither Helen nor her new acquaintance could possibly know that their meeting had been witnessed, with a blank amazement that was rapidly transmuted into sheer annoyance by a young American engineer named Charles K. Spencer. End of chapter 2